Lord Jesus, we thank you that your arm is never too short to save. And so we entrust this class to you, Lord, work in our hearts and in our minds. Give us ears to hear. And indeed, Lord, that we might see Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the context for Acts 3 is uh, Peter and John have been up uh, heading into the temple. They've gone through the, the Golden Gate, the gate called Beautiful, and they have uh, healed uh, this lame beggar who has sat there at this gate for years and years and years. And uh, the man leaps up and begins praising God, and we pick up from there. While the man who had been healed clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us, though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord." and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who come after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servants, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed. The word of the Lord. Well, what has happened is that in the temple complex, and you can actually get online and Google image it if you want, uh, there's a wonderful model uh, in the Israeli Museum there in Jerusalem over by the Knesset where you go and see the Dead Sea Scrolls if you ever get a chance to go see that. There's a wonderful model of what Jerusalem looked like in the time of Jesus, and it looks exactly like it. And it's the closest model that we actually have of what the temple looks like. And on the side of the temple, there are these beautiful columned porches that uh, so, they call Solomon's Portico. And in fact, Jesus had spent quite a bit of time there and up in the temple courts. And Peter and John have moved off to the side while this man had clung to them. Now, why do you think that they might have moved off to the side? Let's get out of here, right? Uh, let's, let's move off to the side, try not to draw too much attention to ourselves. And yet everybody is astounded, and this man is jumping up and down. He won't let go of Peter and John. Uh, he's absolutely overwhelmed by what God has done 
in his life, and everybody's in awe and in amazement. And you can't blame them. Right? If, if that had happened in any of our lives, where someone who was once entirely broken down, and it was just a fact of life that they were going to be crippled, we would have managed the expectation in our life and just assumed, well, uh, this person is crippled for the rest of their lives, and, and that's just the way that it is. And now all of a sudden you have to blink a couple times and rub your eyes to see that this is the same man who once be- was begging at the temple gate. And Peter's response, never one to miss an opportunity to preach a sermon, uh, says, why are you so astounded? Why are you so much in, in awe? Why are you so worked up over this man being healed? That seems to be a ridiculous question. There's a good reason why we ought to be all worked up as this man was healed. But we also see in Jesus' ministry, Jesus would do something very curious. He would heal somebody and then he'd say something like, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody I did this. And then, of course, what would they go and do? Tell everybody, right? They would go and tell everybody. But one of the things that you're saying is that it's easy in the world in which we live in to latch on to the miracles, right? It's easy to latch on to the event itself rather than the person behind the event. In John's gospel, John calls the miracles that Jesus does signs. They're those things which point to who Jesus is, what Jesus is doing on our behalf, what Jesus has done on our behalf. And they're like signposts that tell us this is who Jesus is, this is what he's doing. But they're not the thing to be focused on in and of itself. As wonderful and as amazing as it is that this man has been healed and indeed his life has been changed worldly-wise, the deeper miracle is that his heart has been changed, right? Uh, more angels rejoice in heaven over what than anything else? When somebody's soul gets saved, right? When they come into fellowship with God through Jesus Christ, that is the real miracle, right? Uh, somebody jumps up and down and there's no explanation for it. If they've been crippled their whole life, there's probably not a lot of argument that that's a miracle. I can't explain it, but that's really remarkable and everybody's for it. Uh, what's remarkable to me are that people still become Christians, Because from a worldly perspective, the heart is so hard and so antagonistic toward God uh, that people don't don't want anything to do with that. Now, they might articulate they do want something to do with it. Uh, They might at least articulate a need. But ultimately, at its very core, most every single one of us in our own nature uh, don't desire to be in fellowship with God. I would love all the blessings of God. I would like God to shower me with blessings. But in my heart of hearts... Uh, before God worked in my life, uh, my heart was not turned toward Him. And that's a greater miracle because, again, it doesn't take much convincing to, to your neighbor that this man has been healed and that God or whoever did something great in this man's life. Uh, but when it comes to trying to talk to somebody about Christianity or faith, uh, they may roll their eyes, uh, they might listen politely, uh, or they may answer with antagonism uh, toward faith. It's a much, much harder issue. And so that's what Peter is saying. Why do you wonder at this? Let me tell you something that you ought to wonder at. That you killed the author of life. That's an interesting turn of phrase. God sent the author of life into the world and your response was to kill him. Right? That, That will get your attention. And so he really starts to turn uh, the screws. And, uh, you know, very few pe- preachers, I think, um, 
would, would preach in this way today, um, or I should say that they'd be a little more nuanced. But they say, why, you know, Peter says, why are you so worked up uh, about this? Uh, why do you wonder uh, about this? And then he says, why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? Right? Because there is some, here they see Peter and John do this. They think, well, Peter in and of himself has some sort of healing power that he's able to do. And so we need to listen to him. Or worse yet, uh, Peter is able to live his life in such a way that he's such a holy man that God has used him to bring about a healing in this man's life. And Peter, thankfully, is self-aware enough to say that couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, if there's any healing that in, in any of our lives, whether it's a healing of the soul or a physical healing, it's, it's from God. It's from God and not the fact that God has used Peter as the instrument. Peter considers it neither here nor there, nor is it uh, an issue of piety. Now, um, I've met people that are a lot closer to the throne of God than I am. And, uh, and I do think that there are people in our lives, and I'm sure that you've experienced this, that really exude a certain holiness and, and character of life. And the people who are the most like that that I've met are unaware of it, are unaware of it. There, there's a sense of humility about them, and uh, they just uh, are what God has made them, and they continue and function in that way in their life in complete and total comfort. It's not, it's not forced. If holiness is forced, everybody hates that, right? That's called hypocrisy. <laughs> uh, and nobody uh, likes uh, a good uh, hypocrite. And so when it comes, maybe you do, uh, but when it comes to somebody and their holiness of life, they'll be the first to tell you, they'll be the first to tell you that it has nothing to do with them. Uh, I've been thinking a lot recently about John Newton, and anytime we, we sing a, a song or a hymn by John Newton, I, I think of him, and I think I referenced him in our last class, but John Newton was a slave trader in uh from Africa to uh, the New World. And uh, along the way, he became converted to Christianity and, and gave up his, his way of life and ended up taking a parish in England called Olney Parish right outside of London, which is now continue, contiguous with London. And uh, just the, um, the great uh, amount of humility uh, and holiness of life uh, that he possessed, it was a complete 180. In his life, the people who knew John Newton uh, met him later on in life and said, I don't know this person. I'm not sure who they are. And it wasn't as if Newton had this plan of, you know, today I'm going to work on my profanity. Uh, to next week, I'm going to work on my diet. Uh, next week, I'm going to work on uh, my family uh, relationships. Uh, and the week after that, I'm going to work on my driving, which is not a bad idea. Birmingham, look alive. Uh, it wasn't that at all, but God began to work in John Newton's life in such a way that God transformed John Newton. John Newton didn't transform himself. And out of this life, you can uh, hear uh, how he feels about himself. And he's not a man of arrogance or a man of pride. And you hear that in, in his hymns. You hear that uh, all through his hymns of the work that God has done in his life, most famous of all, Amazing Grace. 
Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That saved a wretch like me. John Newton still understood that even in his present state of being in relationship with God, that at a very basic level, he still felt his wretchedness. And the older he got, he didn't feel like he got more and more holy. The older he got, the more reliance he found himself the more reliance he found himself placing upon the Lord for any holiness of life, for any work done in his life. And indeed, that was the case in, um, in helping free up uh, the British Empire from the slave trade. And in fact, his good friend William Wilberforce, who was the primary mover in Parliament, one of the great struggles that he had of his life was whether or not he ought to go into the ordained ministry. Because there's this idea that has always persisted in the church that if you're a super Christian, you ought to be ordained. Right. If you're a really good Christian, if you really like Christianity, uh, then you ought to be ordained. Oh, if it were only true in the Episcopal Church. But, um, but uh, Wilberforce realized in the midst of all this, and he struggled with it, why am I not being ordained? I don't feel like God is using me as much as, as he ought to. And all of his friends were saying, are you serious? Look at what you're doing in Parliament. You are, if you were an ordained clergyman in the Church of England, you wouldn't be in the position in order to affect the end of the, of the abolition of the slave trade in the British Empire. Uh, Josiah Wedgwood, uh, you probably uh, still get wedding gifts from him uh, or anniversary gifts. Uh, and uh, Josiah Wedgwood wondered, where, what, I'm just a potter. I make plates, I make decorative items. But his witness, uh, you can still see them uh, in museums, these beautiful yellow soup bowls that he gave to those in the Clapham sect like Newton and Wilberforce and others. And they're sitting at their tables, especially Wedgwoods, I'm sure. They would begin to talk. They would gossip the gospel and the implications of the gospel in people's lives. And they would talk about the slave trade. And I wonder the position of the person eating out of this beautifully decorated soup bowl who might have been a little bit ish on whether or not the slave trade ought to be abolished and slavery ended in the British Empire. When they finally slurped their last sip of soup, they looked at the bottom of Wedgwood Bowl and there was a black man in chains and written around it, am I my brother's keeper? Ready for the fish course? <laughs> well, Indeed, these are witness of individuals who, uh, a quiet witness, a witness of humility, because above all, they knew that God was in control of the situation. Even if they lost, even if Wilberforce hadn't been able to get that bill through Parliament, ending slavery in the British Empire, they knew that it was in God's hands, and ultimately, at the end of the day, God would prevail. Right? We've read the end of the book, God wins. Right? And all things will be set to right. And so what Peter understands, what Wilberforce, Newton, Wedgwood, what they all understood and what we understand, I hope, is that whatever station God has placed you in your life, he's using you. He's using you. And especially if you feel infinitely small and useless that God may not be using you, that's almost always an indicator that he is. And so when Peter says, why do you wonder? Why do you wonder that God would actually be able to do something big like this? For the only one that could do something like this 
is God himself. It can't come about through any power that I possess in and of myself. Even if you are in a position of influence, ultimately it's going to be of God. And it certainly doesn't come through any inward piety or holiness on the part of the individual. Because if you're a Christian, you know that you bring nothing to the table. Any holiness that you possess has been imputed to you, has been given to you in Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that some of you are just naturally predisposed to being very sweet and nice. Some of you are. I'm not. Right? And, uh, and uh, I wish that I were. I wish that I were a whole lot uh, nicer a person. And it used to always worry me when um, people used to, well, they still do, even though we're not sure that he actually ever said it. And it'll say, quote, attributed to St. Francis. It said, uh, preach the gospel always. And if necessary, use words. I thought, Lord, have mercy, right? Because if my life is the only sermon that people read, nobody's going to be a Christian, right? Nobody is going to be a Christian. Uh, And that's why Peter doesn't let the act stand on its own. He says, what I want you to see is that the healing of this man points to Jesus Christ, and so I'm going to preach a sermon. Because if you cannot hear, how will you know? If you cannot hear, how will you know? Our faith is one of revelation, that God has revealed himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And unless we tell them, how will they know? If you aim at nothing, you're sure to hit it. And I find that very true of children. We are all naturally wired to be heretics. And um, I get very upset when I read children's Bible stories and books where the bottom line is, be really nice to one another, right? It's not a bad lesson. You really ought not to hit your your sister or your brother. Uh, Don't scratch them. You ought to be sweet to them. You ought to share. Those are all values that we want to instill uh, in our children. Uh, But what Peter is saying here is, and I'm I'm drawing it out from, from the ministry he has here in Acts 3, is that if you preach the gospel those things are going to come up naturally. If you've planted the seeds of the gospel in a child's life and you water them with the words of the gospel and God waters them through the power of the Holy Spirit, God is going to open the eyes of your child to be able to see and do what they ought to do. And when they do fall into sin, hopefully their eyes are open to repent and return to the Lord. There's a book by Elise Fitzpatrick and... uh, her daughter, Jessica, help me, Thompson, uh, out in the bookstore called Give Them Grace. And a lot of people think it's a bunch of hooey. And uh, a lot of people think it's a bunch of hooey because it sounds very luxury in certain parts where they give these scenarios where if your children are fighting to intervene and say things like, you know, maybe your children have said this, might have never, ever done anything like this, but I don't love my sister. (laughs) And so what... uh, what Fitzpatrick and Thompson would say is that that's a good moment to intervene and say, um, do you know uh, who has every right not to love us uh, but loved us anyway so much that he gave his life for us? Jesus. A lot of people say, well, that sounds so smarmy and so Sunday school. Uh, But the thing about it is that I've noticed about children is that never underestimate their capacity to take in what it is that you're teaching them. And, uh, And that's a whole lot better than what I would normally say, because normally I would say things like, 
you're going to love your sister. And if I bring God into it, it's because God tells you you have to love your sister. Right? And for some reason, it doesn't make them want to love their sister uh, anymore. In fact, it makes them sort of fold their arms and, and dig in their heels and, uh, and be upset for however long it takes them to get over. And eventually they do. And so it's certainly no worse than my natural reaction. Uh, but also one of the things that, that I think about with Peter's ministry here, that it's not just, it's not because of our power or our piety. Let me point you toward Jesus is one of the reasons why I'm an Episcopalian. Um, I, I grew up in the church. We had a little stint where I was a Methodist. And that was really good because that was the part where I sort of uh, understood the nature of you know, moving from the head to the heart and, and uh, a heartfelt experiential religion. Uh, but when I went off to college, I started going back to the Episcopal church. Uh, there was a young assistant uh, at the church I was going to named Paul Walker. And... Um, uh, and so uh, I thought he was okay. So I went there, and, um, and all of uh, our friends back home who were in the Methodist church thought I'd backslidden for sure, right? Andrew, went for, he's an Episcopalian now, uh-oh. Um, but one of the things that, I, that drew me in was the verticality of, of worship. Absolutely, the liturgy can, can become staid, it can be boring, it can feel rote uh, sometimes, uh, but that's a lot, that's a better place to be in so many churches where the emphasis is laid on the preacher and the service to draw you in in such a way uh, that it's kind of built on personality rather than, uh, than sort of the, the day in, day out. In fact, Stanley Hauerwas, who teaches ethics at Duke, was just interviewed. And one of the things that he said that, um, that he really appreciated uh, was using the prayer book liturgy of morning and evening prayer, he said, because it keeps you so centered that you don't have to make things up as you go along, right? Another thing is, you know, I'm, uh, uh, I'm not one of those that really gets into the trappings of the church, you know, vestments and things like that. Uh, but one of the reasons why we wear vestments is that it, it keeps you focused and we sort of blend in. It's not really meant to set us apart, even though in one sense it does set us apart, uh, but more than that, it's, uh, let me tell you, worst dressed people on the face of the earth, clergy, right? It covers us up. And that is a very good thing. Because if you're a snob like me, I'm a total clothes snob. And I've been to many churches where they don't wear vestments. And my mind immediately goes like, that's a very ill-fitting suit. Or, or that's a really nice suit. I wonder how much he gets paid. Um, uh, and that may just be me, but the whole idea is that like John the Baptist, you decrease so that Jesus might increase. And what we're trying to do is to avoid any distraction and any emphasis. I mean, there are often times where I'll pray. You don't hear me, but you, ever see, you always wonder what we pray about, like when we disappear during the hymn before the sermon. I was wondering about um, some clergy, I won't name names, are furiously scribbling notes. Um, but, uh, uh, but one of the things that I often pray is, uh, God, um, whatever is of you that you would sear on our hearts and whatever is not of you that you have everybody forget immediately. Just cast it from their mind. Put a pall over it. And one of the wonderful things about our liturgy and the way that it's set up is it's a built-in mechanism to keep that from happening. But that doesn't mean that, you know, it's dry or stayed. I mean, the prayer that I prayed for uh, Aniston and Celeste this morning, um, I wrote myself, uh, but... Uh, <laughs> Actually, I didn't. I, I, I hope the Holy Spirit was working through me. 
uh, and he does give us utterance for prayers and, and, and the like. Uh, so it's, but ultimately, it's, there, there's a verticality in worship, and what Episcopalians need to work on as an aside is that there is a horizontal nature of worship that we're worshiping corporately and together, that, yes, it's an individual relationship with God through Jesus, but there's also the notion of the body of Christ. And sometimes we have to be very careful that we don't get locked into sort of cold, impersonal worship. Uh, But Peter gets it, John the Baptist gets it, Cranmer got it, and I hope that we get it, that uh, it's about us stepping back into the background and allowing Jesus to be in the fore. Because if we're in the foreground, we're, just, we're getting in the way. I mean, I can't number the number. I'm sure that when I get to heaven, I'll be able to see how many times I got in the way of the gospel, thinking that I knew better. Thinking that I knew better. And we look at Peter's sermon, and what does Peter put out there? Peter puts out what they already know. He doesn't appeal to anything other, but he says, look, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, being around Jews, he appealed to this, the notion of, look, this is not something uh, new, although it is, but this is a fulfillment of what the Old Testament talked about, right? The, the God of our fathers has sent Jesus into the world. He himself has come into the world, and this is what our forefathers longed for, and you killed him. Now, um, a lot of people would get antsy at this point in the sermon, and that's good. One of the great things that came out of the Reformation was the understanding, uh, and Luther experienced this himself, and it's true of all human experience, that before you can be made better, you have, to, you, have to be, you have to be sick. You have to know your illness. You have to know your malady. You have to know the pain before you can cry, uncle. And Luther understood the reality of, of the human situation and the human condition uh, because he lived life day in and day out. And so Peter is turning the screws here on his listeners just as it's the preacher's job today to turn the screws on their listeners. And just as the Bible says, look, if you want to live, what has to happen first? You have to die. You have to die to yourself. You have to put everything aside wholly over to Jesus before you can have and experience life. Now, there's a lot of preaching today that doesn't include this tact. And it tends to be totally, uh, one, I think it can, it can connect at life at one level, but ultimately it won't connect in life. Uh, so there's a lot of preaching today, and this, uh, I've said this a thousand times, but I'll say it again, is that it really is not a conservative liberal divide. It's, it's just a situation where you have people who uh, are not preaching the law uh, because they think that it, um, it's not a good enough technique, that it alienates people. But people are already alienated from God. Uh, not just alienated from God, but alienated from one another. And I don't know about you, but it's incredibly refreshing for me to hear a preacher just simply be honest and, and to tell me something that, that I already know, but that maybe I'm afraid to talk about. Um, the great example that we use around here is one of Frank Limehouse. I think it was his first sermon. He was preaching from Romans 7, and he said some of the most unchristian thoughts that he ever entertains are just as he's kneeling to take communion. If it weren't the Advent, he would have been fired, right? Uh, but because of the Advent, everyone went, whew, you know, okay. Um, uh, it's, 
I mean, in that, in that one vein, it's, it says it's, it's okay to struggle. Uh, you ought to struggle. Uh, there is a struggle, but we don't leave it there. And there are a lot of churches that will simply leave it there. Uh, we don't leave it there. Peter goes on uh, to preach the gospel saying, yes, there is a problem. Uh, this Jesus whom you killed, uh, and yet uh, you acted in ignorance. You acted in ignorance. And that's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. He says, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. When Mel Gibson's uh, film, The Passion, came out, which is based on John's Gospel, one of the big controversial things was over the line in John's Gospel about uh, the Jews killing Jesus. And it, uh, the debate has been on for, for years and years. I mean, you can, you can read it. Who killed Jesus? Was it the Jews? Was it the Romans? Well, um, from an academic perspective, you can argue that um, all day long, and, and the answer is yes and yes. Uh, but from a Christian perspective, the answer is much simpler. Uh, we killed Jesus. Uh, we killed Jesus. Uh, everybody uh, is guilty of murdering Jesus. And so Peter's words to us today uh, are not just for the, those listening but in that day and time, but for us even today. And so these words uh, cut us to the quick by the power of the Holy Spirit that we're left hearing, well, what do we do then? Uh, what do we do to get us out of the condition that we're in, to get us out of the shape we're in? Who's going to deliver us? Who's going to move us to a place where we can find healing and we can find wholeness at a deep level like this guy at the gate? And Peter says, this is what you need. You need your sins blotted out and you need refreshment. Now, you can go back and listen to my Good Friday sermon uh, from this year where I talk about this. Um, But I think it's very interesting that at the beginning of Lent, uh, we um, we sing um, David's famous psalm after committing uh, sin uh, with uh, Bathsheba. And he says, um, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Uh, cast me not away from thy presence. Um, uh, and in there he also says uh, that you would blot out my transgressions that are ever before me. Right? And what David, and then of course David's prayer is answered on Good Friday at the end of Lent, because one of the things that we all desire and that we all need is to have our sins blotted out, to be removed. Uh, There are a lot of churches that that rightly talk about the forgiveness of sins, that through what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, that your sins are forgiven. And that's right. That's right. But that only gets uh, to part of what Jesus did on the cross on our behalf. He didn't just forgive us our sins. He blotted out our transgressions. Which means because of what Jesus has done, it's as if our sins were never, ever there in the first place. They've been removed as far as the east is from the west. They've been blotted out. And so here Peter holds it over their head. This Jesus whom you crucified, and yet, and yet the very one whom you crucified is the one who is able to blot out your offense in such a way that he can now relate to you 
as if it never happened, as if you are indeed the perfect child who has done no wrong. And not just that, but what that allows and brings forth in the life of the believer is refreshment. I mean, this time of year is incredibly frustrating to me because this is vacation time, right? And if you work, whatever it is that you do, uh, I don't know that it gets any better in retirement because I meet a lot of retired people who are frustrated. Um, but, you know, I had a Balsam Buford, Balsam Buford who di- clearly did not play golf who said something like, I just can't imagine spending the rest of my life chasing a little white ball around a golf course. And I said, that's because you're not a golfer. I can. Um, and yet... This time of year where we're all tired, uh, whether, uh, regardless of what you do, whether you stay at home or whether you work in an office or you work in a factory, uh, you always look forward to vacation. And Lauren and I were looking at vacation the other day, and uh, we were looking at three weeks in South Carolina in three different locations with our three girls aged five and under. And I thought, that vacation is going to kill me. Right? It's, it's going to kill me. Um, and, and part of it is this notion, and I've written and talked about this before, that we think that we just go, 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 and we look forward to these little spurts of vacation, whether we go to the lake for the weekend or whatever it is, and we look for that moment to be the time when we get our batteries recharged, right? We go on a week or two of vacation, and if you're anything like me or if you're a human being, you get back and you think, that didn't really work, <laughs> right? I'm still wound up. I'm still tired. And if you're anything like me, how long does it take you to actually get to the point on vacation where you can actually just stop and relax? Because we live our lives in such a way that it's just crazy. And I, and I love it. I love burning the candle at both ends. Wouldn't have it any other way. And yet, I realize that it's to my detriment. And so what I thought is, we just need better vacations, all right, we need, to, uh, we need to make sure that we can farm the kids out wherever we have to, we have to put them, uh, and, and we'll go someplace where it's very hard to communicate with anybody, and we'll, and we'll just, Lauren and I will just be there. And, and the thing about it is, is there's, you know, there's a very big difference between, um, uh, you know, when you are first married and you go on vacation, then when you have kids and go on vacation, when you walk into the hotel room, and the first thing you see are two queen-size beds, and you go, yes! You know, because um, you can kind of, like, you know, sort of, and, and, well, anyway. Uh, and, then, and then, you know, and, and you go, and, and one of the things I look forward to is sleeping in. When was the last time I slept in? And I can't do it anymore. And I get so mad. And so Lauren came out of the hotel, uh, out of the bedroom into where I was watching the TV one vacation. And I ha- it was 7.45 in the morning. I had a br- drink with an umbrella in it. And I'm watching, I'm watching Short Circuit 2 in, in Spanish. And, and, and I'm sipping on it. And she goes, I said, I've been up for an hour and a half. And I, I just can't sleep. It, it's just the way it is. And, and no matter how hard I orchestrate it, well, you're really getting a picture of my life. Uh, no matter how hard I orchestrate it, I, I can't get refreshment. There are times when I feel like I get a little bit of rest. You know, where I wake up, I feel pretty rested. But when's the last time you felt refreshed? Not rested, but actually refreshed. Refreshed, made new. Made new again. Uh, A new lease on life. A new lease on whatever struggle it is that you have going on in your life. And what Peter says is that this is what the Lord Jesus offers you. He offers you the blotting out of your transgressions, but he also offers you refreshment.
refreshment. And that's very hard because I like to be in control of my refreshment, right? And, and it has to come in more than just a Mai Tai, right? The refreshment that Jesus is talking about is the feeling of being made new and whole again in Jesus. And the only way that that happens is actually resting in him and acknowledging in our own brokenness that he's the author of life. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. And if there's going to be any refreshment, any renewal, any rest in our life, it has to come from him because trying to organize our life or set up our life to have bound, there's no such thing as boundaries in life. I mean, there is a place where we have to, you know, one of my big struggles, I have to learn how to say no to things. But I mean, think about how awful life would be if you actually had boundaries. If your child comes up to you and says, I want to sit in your lap, and you say, I'm sorry, it's daddy time. You just drew a really great boundary, uh, but that's not, not the way that it works, nor is it the way that it ought to work. And so boundaries, in, in some regard, are, are for the birds. Um, there are other ways in which boundaries are very helpful and good. Uh, but there's no way that we can arrange our lives in such a way that we can find and, and create refreshment uh, on our own. And if there was ever a system set up that was well-meaning and well-intentioned to create refreshment and rest in life, It was the system created by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. They had all kinds of wonderful rules and helpful hints for living in order to live your life in such a way that you could try to exhaust it of its potential. But all they were was burdensome. Uh, They were a law that ultimately crushed that which was supposed to bring life actually robbed you of life. And they heard these words... And they were greatly annoyed, uh, so much so that they interrupted Peter's sermon. Uh, they weren't able, uh, even, even to many, these words of life and refreshment, uh, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear that they have to give up. They don't want to hear that it actually has everything to do with God and very little to do with you. And so um, those who were hearing him the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection uh, from the dead. Now, we're going to get to why the Sadducees in particular were upset about that particular part. Uh, But suffice it to say at this point, um, if you're going to preach the gospel and it's all about Jesus, people will be greatly annoyed. People will be greatly annoyed. And I think that that's, that's just a fact of life. And yet, uh, there is only one thing needful and only one message that has the power to refresh and to make whole and to be made new. And that is the message of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, uh, the good news of the gospel, uh, that God has for you, has died for you, and has been raised from the dead for you. Questions, comments, concerns? Yes, sir. Right. 
Yeah, so and the miracle of that, that, like, I mean, who is this Peter guy? Right, he was the one that denied Jesus to a little girl. He just couldn't even stand up to her. And yet here he is uh, preaching to lions in the lion's den. Uh, and, and, and the only answer for that is God, is, is the Holy Spirit at work in, in Peter's life. We talked a little bit about it last week, that it would take some real guts uh, to say to someone who was crippled from birth, uh, get up and walk. <laughs> Right. Uh, on the one hand, that could be a very insensitive thing to say, but of course it wasn't Peter saying that, but God speaking through Peter. Dr. Taylor. Uh, the, uh, if Peter had to- said to the people, yes, I did that with God's help, mm-hmm. instead of giving God credit for it, wouldn't they have understood him more? Because they saw him do this uh, miracle, and God didn't do it. Right. A lot of people didn't even know who God was or who Jesus was, I suppose. Is that right? Yeah, I think that it would have been more palatable. But I suppose the difficult thing in that is that, um, you know, I'm always looking for a little bit of credit. Um, yeah. and, uh, and even uh, that little bit of credit gives me something to latch onto and robs God of, of all the credit and all the glory. Yeah. Do you think that many people understood that when he said that Jesus did it? Those whom, whose hearts God had worked in. Okay. I, you know, one of the interesting things I think about just being the whole idea of conversion is that it's not until after you're a Christian that you're able to look back with Holy Spirit hindsight and say, that was God. Yeah. That was God. Like C.S. Lewis's testimony is all about that, where he was struggling intellectually with his friends and, and talking about things. And then when he became a Christian, he could then look back and see the hand of God at work constantly. Well, this is just a minor question, okay? Thank you. I hope you all have wonderful vacations. Uh, uh, Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.